This morning, I want to talk about giving. Now, hold on a minute. If you are visiting for the first time, let me just let you know, we are not one of those kinds of churches where the pastor and the church is always talking about money. That's not what you've walked into. As a matter of fact, uh, with the exception of just a couple of weeks ago, remember when I was throwing quarters out at you like candy to illustrate a point? And I think my first month or so of preaching here, when I was giving out $5 bills when we were studying through the book of Ephesians about how we respond to unspeakable grace, uh, this is actually the only time in three and a half years I've been here that I'll actually speak about giving. Uh, And, you know, churches can make a couple errors when it comes to this topic. Number one, either that's all they seem to talk about is giving and needing to have more money, or they don't talk about it at all, right? Neither one of those is, is, is smart or prudent. The key is we need to speak about giving when the Bible speaks about giving, and we need to speak about how we give in the way the Bible speaks about it as well. And this is really important because we can make all kinds of crazy mistakes when it comes to money and our faith. Now, depending upon your theology or your politics, you might see giving as a good thing, a sign of God's pleasure, or you might see giving as a bad thing, as a tool of oppression, right? You might see, given your theology or politics, uh, the lack of wealth as a good thing, as a sign of piety, or the lack of wealth as a bad thing, as a sign of God's displeasure. And the reality is, the Bible teaches none of these things. If there is any kind of one overarching meta-concept that the Bible is trying to teach us about money, it is, it is not about how much money you have, but how much of you your money has, right? That, that's probably the overarching thing, of the overarching theology of money. It's not about how much of it you have, it's how much of you it has. And so whether you are a Christian who's barely making ends meet or your ends are overlapping 10 times over, we all have to wrestle with this particular dynamic. Now, now last comment on, on this introductory passage or this, this introduction to this last passage is even though this passage is actually all about giving, it's really not that obvious on the face of it when you read it because Paul never comes out and says, Philippians, thanks for the cash. He just doesn't come out and say it like that, right? So you can read this and miss the fact that he's really rejoicing over the generosity of the the Philippians because oftentimes money is intertwined with the practical and spiritual realities of life, like it is here in this final section of Philippians 4, we can miss the fact that often the Bible is giving us really great instruction on how we think about this particular topic. And by the way, that's something that also we need to keep in mind, the reminder that money and giving is often the context for the more weighty matters of life that we see in Philippians. Are are you treasuring Christ? Are you content in Christ? Are you excited to be a part of gospel work and partnering in the most practical of ways? And a lot of times that is in the way we steward our lives, the way we spend our time, and the way we spend our money. And so in our last passage here in the book of Philippians, we learn great, basically five truths of giving. Now, if you're somebody who um, always looks at the sermon bulletin, you'll notice the title of the sermon has nothing to do with my introduction. And that's because I came up with the title of this sermon like six months ago when we were planning to go through Philippians. And as I studied this last passage, there was rejoicing, there was dissatisfaction, and and I I think, what, what, strength, is that the other thing in the title? Is that what it is? And so though, as I started to study the passage, I realized that 
the satisfaction and joy and stability is coming because of this great theology of giving. So unfortunately, my office staff is more efficient than I am and printed the bulletin by the before I got to study for it. So they went to print with that. And so if you want to scratch that out, you can write five truths about giving because that's really what Paul is trying to teach us here. And the way it's going to come out is because this is on giving, but it's actually indirectly. So it's not like in the Gospels where Jesus actually gives us great parables to teach us about stewarding finances. We're actually learning about giving indirectly by watching the Philippians and Paul's response to them. So the first two points are what we learn about giving and money from the Philippians, and the second two points are what we learn about money from Paul's reaction, and then the last point is just kind of a summary of how we really need to think about giving in general, yeah? So that's kind of the outline, but here it is on the screen. Point number one is going to be giving is an evidence of concern, kindness, and partnership in gospel work. We're going to see that in like verse 10, verse 14, verse 15. Giving is a sign of maturity. It is a spiritual act of worship, quite frankly. We see that in verses 17 and 18. And then contentment, this is what we hear from Paul, contentment, when it comes to money, contentment is the key. When it comes to money, spiritual fruit is the goal. And finally, we can never outgive the God who gave all. That's the way we're looking at this passage, and we'll take it one at a time. And because today is a communion service, we're going to get through these points at a rather quick clip. So right quick. Number one, giving is an evidence of concern, kindness, and partnership in gospel work. So you notice our passage, this last section of Ephesians, or excuse me, Philippians, ends with Paul exploding again with great joy. He says, I rejoice greatly. And he said that numerous times, about four times in this book, Paul is talking about rejoicing in the Lord, but this time he adds, adds the adverb greatly. He says, I rejoice greatly because you were able to revive your concern for me. So obviously we can take from that that there's been a point that the Philippians weren't able to uh, show their concern, or at least didn't have the opportunity, although they always had concern for Paul. And that finally, we know from Philippians 2.25, when Epaphroditus showed up with their gifts for Paul, he was just renewed in his soul, refreshed, being reminded again that he's not in this alone, that there is a, a small army of believers supporting his work and caring for him. Now, just a little background history. Unlike our kind of penitentiary system, where if you are in prison, it is the responsibility of the state to take care of the prisoners, that's not how it rolled back in, the, in antiquity. If you were put in prison, the responsibility for your food and your care and your, or your clothing and your warmth, all of that was not the responsibility of the jailers or the state or the empire. That fell squarely onto you, which is ironic because you're in prison, how do you take care of that, or to your family or your friends. So if your family and friends forgot about you, you literally would rot in jail. You would starve to death, you would freeze, you would not be cared for at all. And so as you know from the beginning of the book of Philippians, Paul is writing from prison. And he is on his own, destitute. He has nothing. And then Epaphroditus, the faithful servant, believer from Philippi, shows up with all these supplies and financial gifts because he has to also pay for his own imprisonment. How crazy is that? So Paul is rejoicing because he's reminded yet again through the financial giving of these Philippians, who we know from 2 Corinthians 8, they were not very wealthy. Actually, they were described to be in extreme poverty. And yet, here they were, sacrificially giving to supply Paul. 
Now you keep in mind, this is a theme throughout the whole book, the partnership in the gospel, and it was shown in many ways. Acts chapter 16, when we started our study, how the Philippians labored for the gospel, how it cost them to start this church, but they did it. And all throughout this book, Paul is reminding us of that special relationship, and part of that partnership was seen in the way they financially supported what he was doing. So, six times in this book, Paul alludes to this partnership in various ways, and just take a look at him on the screen. Chapter 1, verse 5, he just comes out and says, we are in partnership in the gospel work. Two verses later, he says, you are in partnership with me of grace. He uses the word partakers there. Later at the end of chapter 1, striving side by side for the faith. Chapter 2, you served with me in the gospel. Chapter 4, you labored side by side with me. And then finally here in chapter 4, verse 15, you entered into partnership with me when no other church would. The Philippians supported Paul through their generosity. Now we say, well, what's what's the takeaway from us? Here's the reality, friends. Most of you in this room are not going to be able to, to go off to some communist nation and start a coffee company let alone through that coffee company, provide the livelihood for dozens of people in a city where you're planting a church. But through our friends that we support, you are and you can. Through Steve and Hannah Patton, we are doing that very thing because of your faithful contributions. None of us here are going to be able to pilot uh, medical supplies or biblical resources or doctors or pastors into villages up in Papua New Guinea. But because of your ministry of love and your financial contributions, a young man named Brett got saved, came to know Christ in this church, and now he's an aviation missionary in Papua New Guinea. Because of what you're doing, you're making that happen. None of us here are going to be able to train up 20 or 30 families just across the border here a couple hours away to take the gospel into nations that have no gospel and cities that have no church, in many cases, not even a Bible. But because of your faithfulness, you're part of that. A few of you here will get a chance to train Japanese nationals in theology and help them plant churches in the dense urban settings of Tokyo and Nagoya and Osaka. And you're making that possible. So while maybe you're not with your hand at the plow because of your faithful partnership in the gospel, that's what our giving is doing. It's the same as the Philippians. It's not only showing kindness and concern, it's partnership in gospel work. So yeah, maybe this week you were closing a real estate deal, your real estate agent, or you were cutting a customer's hair or studying for finals or giving a customer an insurance bid, but you were also piloting medical resources, training people in the gospel, planting churches, starting coffee companies, meeting the physical needs and the spiritual needs of people, men and women you'll never meet because your partnership in giving This is what we need to realize when we give. This is the lesson we learn from Paul and the Philippians. And according to verse 17, we'll look at a little bit later, that's all to your credit. Because Paul says to the Philippians, when you gave, God counts that to your credit. So your giving not only shows your concern for me, Paul says, and your kindness towards me, we're partnering in the gospel. That's the first truth we hear, we learn from giving from the Philippians and Paul. The second truth is this, giving is a sign of maturity and an act of spiritual worship. You notice the two metaphors that Paul uses in verse 17 and 18? He calls it fruit and a fragrant offering. 
Now, if you're familiar with your Bibles, you know that fruit is a common way to describe growth in the Christian life. So Paul talks about fruit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Jesus talks about fruit in John chapter 15. It describes, and I love the metaphor of, and if you grew up on a farm or if you grew up on a tropical island like I did, fruits are luscious and beautiful and overflowing with sweetness. And when you bite a nice, ripe mango and the flavors explode in your mouth and the juices run all down, you know, down your elbow like that, you know you're tasting sweet pleasure the way the world's supposed to be, right? That's the idea. That's the picture the Bible's trying to capture when it talks about our transformation in those terms. There's a sweetness to it, a, a satisfaction to it, a, a how things are supposed to be-ness to it. Likewise, if you've ever bitten into a fruit that was like a dried up and spoiled, that makes you want to throw up, right? So, so Paul is saying there's this fruit that you are bearing when you give this way. The reason I bring that up is that in the context of giving, giving is not done under obligation or, or rote habit or mere duty. According to Philippians, giving is a fruit. It is a sweet pleasure, the way things ought to be. Because the reality is, friends, anyone can give, right? And we can give for all kinds of reasons. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're giving in the way that God wants His people to give. I mean, we, we can give out of guilt, like, so I go to the Starbucks down the street, and if the first, the four people in front of me tip the, the barista, I feel like, oh, man, okay, I, I got to do that because they're watching me now, right? Or if the plate has come by and you feel like everyone in your row is giving, you're going, all right, maybe I'm going to throw something in there, right? But is that fruit? Is that sweetness? Is that, is that the way things ought to be? We can give out of pride. I want people to see how much of a giver I am, how generous I am right? If you've ever seen a, a young man uh, when I was a waiter, I loved serving dating couples. You know why? Because I always knew the guy was going to give me a good tip because he wants to impress the girl. <laughs> Did it make me think the guy was a gracious, generous man? No, he just wants to impress this woman. But I'll take the extra $10, you know, I was fine with that. So we can give out of guilt, we can give out of pride. This third one gets me, I'll be honest. Uh, we can give out of manipulation. So I, I go to this you know, grocery store down the street here, and this woman, I mean, this nice sweet woman at the, you know, rings up my food and my groceries, and she always ends it by saying this, would you like to donate a dollar to the children who don't have any of the stuff you just bought, Foundation? <laughs> no. no, I don't want to give a dollar to those kids. You know, no, okay, give them $10. I'm generous that way. And so we can give for all kinds of reasons. It can be guilt, it can be pride, it can be manipulation. But that's not the fruit that the Bible's talking about when the Bible talks about giving. The Bible uses the word fruit because it's a natural outgrowth that is pleasurable, that is sweet, that brings life to those who feast on it. We give because we make the connection between our giving and the growth of the gospel, the character of God, and it excites us to be a part of what that, do that giving does. That's why we give. 
The second metaphor Paul uses here, he talks about it being a fruit in verse 17, and then he transitions to an Old Testament metaphor by the use of the phrase, it's a sacrifice, a fragrant offering. Now, keep in mind, in the Old Testament, their economy was not cash-based like ours, right? It was primarily agricultural. So your wealth was determined by how much cattle you had, how much sheep you had, those kinds of things, how many oxen, how many lambs, not necessarily money, digits on a bank account. And so when they gave to the Lord, it was often through an animal sacrifice. And like the, the sweetness of fruit, there's something wonderful about the aroma. And I know we, I found out we had a lot more vegans in this church than I realized. Remember that thing a few months ago? But there's something wonderful about meat being cooked on a grill. Can I get an amen, somebody? Amen, right? So when the sacrifice was given, they would cut the animal up and put it on the altar, and the, the aroma of the meat being cooked would go. It's, it's kind of like when Lori makes me bacon. Oh, man, I'm like ready to worship when I walk downstairs like, God is good. Amen. The same kind of thing was this sacrifice was also an aroma. It spoke of life and, and, and giving. It was a fragrant aroma to the Lord. But notice, though, there's that word sacrifice. And that word carries kind of a dual meaning. It's not just referring to the act itself of the, the physical slaying of the animal and cutting up and putting on the altar. It's not just referring to the act. It's referring to the cost of the act. You know, and this isn't a message on, on directly giving, that kind of thing. It's indirect because of the Philippians. So I'm not going to get into what the Bible teaches about how much we give and all that. But if you're a good student of the Old Testament, you know, they were giving about 23 and a third percent of all of their livelihood to the things of God, right? Uh, and things change somewhat in the New Testament. We're not going to get into that. Let me just say this. I think the word itself is the hint. For some people, especially if you grew up in a church, you, you kind of uh, have this 10% number. For some people, 10%, that's a sacrifice. I mean, that is a sacrifice to give. For others, it's not. So if you make it a number, you're missing the point. The point is we need to be giving to where it actually costs me in my life. It might cost me a vacation this year. It might cost me maybe my kids don't go to private school. It might cost me somehow, some way, maybe my kids wear hand-me-downs. But it's going to cost me something to give. Now, you can determine that number. But I, it's not a surprise that the word sacrifice is there because it's about giving to where it's costing me something. I think Paul kind of unpacks this here by saying that this is pleasing to God in verse 18. You notice that? That this is a fragrant aroma, but it's also pleasing to God because it's a sacrifice. It's, a, it's pleasing to God, and here's why, because you're not trusting in the thing that you just put in that, on that altar or in that plate. You're trusting God and not trusting the thing that you are so tempted to believe is what you actually need. That makes sense? So if I'm a farmer and my wealth is determined by my cattle and I'm giving that to God, I'm not trusting the abundance of my cattle. I'm trusting that Yahweh, the Creator, He's going to take care of me. If I'm trusting in my finances, in our modern economy, and I'm giving sacrificially to the Lord to where it's actually costing me, I'm not trusting money, I'm trusting Him. And that's pleasing to the Lord. It, it's, it's not pleasing to Him because He needs a little flow to get Him to the end of the week. That's not how this works. It's pleasing to Him. 
because the offering shows you're trusting him more than the thing that you put on that altar or you put in that plate or however it is that you give. Whether it's cattle, sheep, or cash, it's, a, it's revealing the allegiance of our heart. And so we want to give that way. Now, this is the two lessons we learned from the Philippians, that their giving was a, a practical show of concern and kindness, but it was also partnership and gospel work, and, and that their giving, uh, secondly, their giving is a sign of their maturity, bearing fruit, and it was a spiritual act of worship. Now, what do we learn from Paul, who was kind of on the receiving end of their giving, wasn't he? So the two things we learn about Paul regarding money are found in verse 11 and verse 17, because while Paul's writing to the Philippians, he kind of, he's on this talking about, he's rejoicing in their gifts and excited about that, and then he interjects two kind of commentaries on the giving. And we see that by the use of the same phrase in verse 11 and verse 17. Verse 11, he says, not that I'm speaking about being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So these two phrases, not that I, and he gives a commentary, are breaking up his two thoughts. The first one he's trying to teach us when it comes to money, it, contentment, it's about contentment and living and spiritual fruit and giving. So that's how we're going to look at them. Verse 11, verse 17. First one we're going to look at is about contentment um, and living. So when it comes to money, that's the key. And let's look at what Paul says specifically, looking at verse 11. So he's excited about their resources that they gave to him, that they have this opportunity. He says in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So the word we translate in English, content, in the Greek, the word actually means self-sufficiency. And that sounds a little bit ironic here. So the word content actually means self-sufficiency. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, defined it this way. It, it means to have everything so you need nothing. Okay, now let me unpack that because we live in a different culture. We're going to hear that differently. In our consumer culture, to have everything, they don't mean all material goods and services like a nice car, good clothes, uh, good food, fancy Instagrammable vacations. That's not what they're talking about when they mean have everything. What they're talking about, what the Greek ideal was, that this world, that, that you have everything in life so that you don't need or are captivated by anything in life. Let me put it this way. The ability to have self-sufficiency where you realize, yeah, I don't need a new car. I don't need a bigger house. I don't need that new iPhone. I don't need this, that, or the other thing. I'm fine. You're trying to catch the nuance I'm broadcasting there. It's not you have everything, so I've got all the latest technology, I got the nicest car, I got a wardrobe full of brand new clothes, I got all this stuff, and that's why I don't need anything. That's not what it's saying at all. It's saying that none of these things are, be, you're beholding to none of these things. You don't need them. You're, you're impervious to the needs that are so often pressed upon us which, by the way, the entire marketing industry is developed on making you think you have needs that you don't have. And we just go along, yep, I need these things. 
the Greek philosopher saying, no, to be content means you're self-sufficient, that you have no needs that this world can put upon you. That, that's the idea that's being broadcast here. See, the reason circumstances couldn't sway Paul, good, bad, or otherwise, was not because Paul didn't care. It's because Paul knew that God does. It's not that he was impervious and just had a nonchalant, didn't care attitude. He, was, he had an unshakable confidence that God cares for him, and God has his best in mind. And so whether that best is in abundance or need, it didn't matter because he knew God was looking out for him. Friends, do you have that unshakable confidence in the character of God, in His goodness, so that you are impervious to the world around you and the needs that it says you really have when you actually don't? Paul could be content knowing that God's grace was sufficient for him in both his abundance and need. I want you to keep your finger in Philippians. Go with me to 2 Corinthians. Uh, Go to the left. If you're kind of new to reading your Bible, go to the left a few pages. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This might be a very common or familiar verse to many of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul says this. But Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so the power of Christ may rest upon me. Friends, do you realize how countercultural that statement is? It's radically countercultural. So this is, this is how Paul reasons. Let's hear, see Paul's logic. So if God's grace was always going to be there for Paul, this meant that Paul was freed from having to worry about himself because he could entrust his own well-being to God's care. And what that means is that he was now free to care for other people. Realize how countercultural that way of thinking is. Paul realized that God's grace was sufficient to him in abundance or need. So he didn't need to worry about himself. You should be thinking about Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, when, when Jesus says, look, the Gentiles worry about these things, what you will eat, what you will wear, what you will clothe yourself with. God knows you have all those needs, but think first on the kingdom of God. God knows your needs, Paul reasoned, so I don't have to stress, which then means I can start thinking about other people. But what's the modern conclusion we draw? Oh, God, you're going to meet my needs. Whew, I can coast now. That is not the Christian worldview. Paul says, God's grace is sufficient. And he says, so I can glory in my weakness. And even then, God's going to take care of me. So I don't need to worry about myself. I can start worrying about others. Friends, this is so countercultural because we live, even if you are a Christian, you are breathing the air of our culture. We live in a culture that sees all limitations and weakness as obstacles to overcome and be victorious over. And you say, well, that, that, yeah, that just, what is that what it is? Not if you're reading your Bible. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches me in my weakness, that's where God is strong, right? So, I was having a wonderful conversation with somebody from our church. We're driving up to visit somebody, visit somebody else. He has young, two young kids, and he was talking about, you know, when, you're young, when you have young kids, they have stuff, 
right? You guys know kids have gear, right? They have their stuff, and they have a small condo, and there's four of them in there, and they got kids' stuff everywhere, and the boys share a room, and that's problematic because one cries, wakes the other up, and it's just, you know, how it goes. So what's the common, conventional, modern way of thinking? You need a bigger house, right? So your boys can have their own room so they don't wake each other up. I love the way this man thought. In God's providence, we really can't afford a bigger house. But you know what's amazing? My boys are learning a really important lesson, how to live with inconvenience. How to live reminded you you're not the center of the world. He saw his limitation and weakness and saw the power of God transforming those little sinners in the room down the hall into people like Jesus Christ. That the world does not revolve around them. That inconvenience is something to actually embrace for the good of your character rather than to upgrade so you have your autonomy and act like the world's always okay when you get it your way. See, this person understood that God's grace would be available to them in their weakness and that that weakness was not necessarily something to overcome and a limitation to, to get around, but something to embrace to see the greater purposes of God worked out in the lives of their kids. Now, was that whole theological system working in his mind? Well, I know this man, so probably yes, but, but whether or not it was, he saw the truth of what Paul was talking about. And that's exactly, by the way, what he said to the Corinthians. You can, I'll have it on the screen. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's exactly what Paul was talking to the Corinthians about. It's not about, okay, God's going to take care of you, so now you can coast. It's God's going to take care of you, so now you get to the business of taking care of his people. Friends, is that your mentality? Or are you just trying to get through this life, take care of your own and you're good? Or are you getting through this life saying, okay, God, you're going to take care of me so I can be like you and take care of others? That's the whole goal. So when it comes to money, contentment is the key. So the key in contentment isn't self-sufficiency, it's Christ-sufficiency, which is exactly, by the way, why he says verse 13, that verse we all know and so often quote out of context. Let's look at it, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How many times have you heard people quote that verse while they're trying to learn to play the guitar? Right? Oh, it's hard, but hey, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've had friends quote that verse when they're trying to bench press and break their record. I can do all things through Christ. So yeah, that's exactly why Paul wrote that verse, so you could bench press 50 more pounds. Way to go. Friends, I've done that too. I've done that too. But do you see that has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about? Paul is writing, what he's saying is that Christ can help you to learn to live life in such a way that your circumstances do not dictate your joy. That was what Paul was saying, that Christ can strengthen you to be able to do, that your circumstances will not dictate your joy. I can do all things through my sufficiency in Christ. Whether those circumstances are abundance or need, want or plenty, wealth or lack, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. And see, this is where we often get the biblical teaching on money incorrect because we actually think it's all about money, and it's not. It's about where is your joy? Where is your contentment? 
Where, where is your joy? Where is your contentment? Friends, catch this. If you've drifted off, pull back here. If Christ is your joy and contentment, if Christ, if he's your joy and contentment, then money won't make much of a difference to you. But if Christ is not your joy and contentment, then money can't make much of a difference for you. Do you see that? If Christ is your supreme value above all things, his supremacy and his majesty and his plan for the world, then money's not gonna make a difference. But if he's not that, then no amount of money's gonna make a difference. And Paul is saying you can do all things through him because he paid the price for your contentment. Friends, how many people are paying price to be content and they have no idea that you can't get contentment from the things of this world because we weren't made for the things of this world? It just won't happen that way. So when it comes to money, contentment in Christ is the key. Which leads to the fourth truth, the second statement that Paul makes in verse 17. Take a look at it where he says, not that I seek the gift, not that I seek the finances, not that I seek all these things, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Wow. Was Paul excited to, to receive provision and supply? Yes. Is it better to have abundance and plenty than not? Of course. But what got Paul, more than anything, excited was their giving, their sacrificial giving, was evidence of this sweet fruit of maturity that was growing in their hearts. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Philippians literally begged Paul to give to him and to other believers. And, and Paul made a comment that the churches in Macedonia were in extreme poverty, and yet they begged from their affliction to be generous. Paul was excited to see their giving because he also knew in God's great economy, as he said in verse 17, that, that, that fruit that is being born through their giving goes to their account. And, and let me say this as your pastor. I, I want to see you give more and more for this exact reason. I am not interested in you giving so we can slurry coat the parking lot, so I can make the bathrooms look nicer. I'm not interested in so that we can upgrade these really old out-of-box shaped speaker things on the screens. That's not it. I'm interested in your giving so that you have the joy and privilege and pleasure of, of building up an investment in what God is doing for all eternity through the proclamation of the gospel. I want to see that, and I want to see you people, myself included, removed, have, have the, the, the slavery of materialism and consumerism slain in our lives. The joy of seeing gospel work continue to grow. Use our wealth for the promotion of the gospel. Uh, probably most of you invest financially. Think of it as this, a, as an eternal investment, a return that you cannot be robbed of. We can't read it today. But go right down Luke chapter 16, parable of the dishonest manager, I think it's called. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. The point of that parable, go home and read it, Jesus is saying is learn to use your money so that when you die, and it's going to happen really quick, friends. That's just the reality, right? It's just a matter of time for a while, but we're going to die. When you get into heaven, people are going to say, I'm here because of that guy. Yeah, he didn't get the latte. He, he, he gave that to missions. 
Yeah, he could have flown first class, but he used that money to start a church plant. And I heard the gospel, and I'm here. That's the exact point Jesus is making in Luke 16. Use your money so that when you enter the kingdom. See, Jesus is not against investment and using our money. Actually, Jesus wants you to get the best investment and return you can possibly get. He says, put it in gospel work so that when you enter the kingdom, there will be many friends that you have there. Friends, I got to share with you. So, um, as your pastor, I'm also, I want this of you, and I'm so grateful to God to see this fruit in you. May 6th, we just had our, our, our annual business meeting, and, you know, if you didn't go to it, you missed out. If you remember and you didn't show, you missed out. Now, I'm sure God will grace you and give you to this account, but you know what we got to do at that business meeting? And who says church business meetings are boring? You know, they've never been to these kind of meetings. Our membership got together. So, so half a year, our church has been, our leadership, the elders have been praying because we have this wonderful confluence of just gospel-centered faithfulness of the congregation and just gospel-centered wise stewardship of the leadership. So we've, one of our elder meetings, one of the elders is saying, guys, we're actually probably in sin if we continue to have this much money in our bank account. We, we are probably bordering on hoarding if we don't do something wise with God's money. And so for six months, we prayed, talked, thought, and so at that meeting, it was time to come to the membership. Okay, this is what we think the Lord's leading us. Are you guys in or out? And the membership of our church voted to use $50,000. Now, some of you, that may not be a lot of money, but to me, I was going out of my mind of $50,000. And we're going to give that to the relief of those who are in desperate need, the poor, and to raise up missionaries to go into the most unreached, hardest places to bring the gospel. What in the world? I was like, yes, I was out of my mind because that's what we got to do because of the gospel faithfulness of this church. Don't you wish you were at that meeting, right? To be able to part of that. I looked at my kids and said, you know what you're at part of? This is part of gospel work right here. Yeah, we could have spent that money on a lot of things. And 50000 was just a portion of what we were trying to steward. That's just 50000 we're giving out right away. And that's above the 80000 that we spend every year in missions work, okay? And I'm not trying to boast. I'm trying to let you get a perspective of what we're trying to do with finances. Let me read you the email exchange between me and the missionary. Who, who was a part of us? You guys know him, right? Ron and Candy. They used to sit here. They're part of our fellowship. Ron, I'm hoping by now our missions team was able to connect you, connect with you about the $25,000 gift we're making the radius. Parentheses. Man, I hope they did, or this is a real spoiler of an email. End parentheses. In any case, friend, I am so glad we are able to partner with you guys this way. We feel a little like the New Testament churches who are privileged to contribute to the expanding work of the gospel through your ministry and our friends at Radius. Can I tell you about Radius, the 20-somethings on there? So there's a family, like 50 families, some singles, 20 to life. They're just going. It's crazy. They're leaving everything behind. When they have Parents' Day, half the parents are really mad because their young children are going to like those stand countries, like, you know, I don't know who knows where, and half the families are just rejoicing, but it's wonderful. So that's, what, that's what's going down, just three hours down the border here. Please encourage the brothers and sisters to press on of making the name of Christ supreme among the nations. One day, 
We will all be gathered around the throne, but until that time, press on in faithfulness. Here's his response. Latin night. Dear Rick, yes, exclamation point. Candy and I enjoyed a Skype call with Alan, our elder of missions, and the missions team on Monday. What a wonderful shot in the arm. Our whole team down here is rejoicing and is so stoked to see that our home church is jumping in with us like this. As I told Alan, it means the world to Candy to have this kind of engagement with our home church. The money, sure, but just the growing sense of partnership in the gospel. That is such a blessing and encouragement to us all until that day. If that's not Philippians chapter 4, if we're not getting to be the Philippians and Ron and the Radius team being the Apostle Paul, I don't know what is. And this is all to God's glory. So as your pastor, I want to encourage you to continue to give. Now, I have no idea, just so you know, who gives what in our church. I deliberately don't have that knowledge because I don't want that, right? I don't want to know that. I don't want to either be beholding to you or, or be embittered to you or whatever. So I don't know, and God has raised up very smart people who handle our finances, right? But I will say this. I, I do know the national giving trends of, of Christians because, you know, Barna and Pew Research puts this out. And friends, it, it's quite frankly an abomination that the way Christians in the most affluent, powerful country ever known in the history of humanity give. The national average, 2.53%. Okay, again, I have no idea what it is in our congregation, but the national average is 2.53 to 3. That is a joke. To be redeemed from the consequence of our sin, to be guaranteed an eternal citizenship with resurrected bodies, to be completely transformed, to have all of our, our addictions, our angers, our lusts, everything eradicated, our sins forgiven, and to be a part of a church that we give 2.5 to 3. We have become more like the criticisms of Paul that our minds on the things of this world, right? Again, not us, I don't know us, but as I speak as one amongst other evangelicals, we got to change that. And I'm praying for you to be challenged by that because the things we can do for the kingdom of God. And if that continues to happen, I hope every year we're coming back to the membership and going, guys, just knock it off. We've got thousands and tens of thousands. We don't even know what to do with this, so this is what we're going to do. I would love for that to happen. I really would. And you know what I love that we have on our stewardship team, men and women who are thinking gospel-centered ways of using money. They're not thinking about jacuzzis, hot tubs, and all these other crazy things, or cafe. Well, okay, it's not wrong to have cafes. You just, just the, they're so gospel-centered. I love that. And so when you give, you need to know there are men and women who are thinking, how do we steward the gracious generosity of God's people for the glory of God and the kingdom work? Okay, got to move on. Um, fifth and finally, we can never outgive the God who gave us all. Uh, verse 19, Paul says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Oh, notice it's not Paul paying the Philippians back. He can't, right? He's broke. But notice who Paul says will pay the Philippians back. God. Friends, God will not be a debtor to any one of us. You cannot outgive him. 
And notice the phrase that Paul says, that God will supply all your needs according to the riches of Christ. Notice he doesn't say out of the riches of Christ. You say, well, what's the difference? If Jeff Bezos from Amazon, Bezos, Bezos said, hey, here's $100, that would be $100 out of his riches, right? But what if Jeff said, I want to give you according to my riches? Well, that $100 would be more like $100 million. And Paul's saying, my God will supply your needs according to the riches of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean, although the context here is about material provision, it's also about other spiritual realities. So, it's not a guarantee at all saying that, well, then you're going to, whatever you give gets multiplied back to you. That's nowhere to be found in the Bible. But we can't expand that to think God will take care of His people physically, and He will also take care of His people spiritually, including the ability to be content and to find our sufficient strength in Christ. So I said earlier, what would you pay for contentment? I think there's a direct correlation that the Scriptures are making here, that Christ, He will, he will supply me, and part of that supply is making me learn to be content and have my sufficiency in Christ. Arguing from the greater to the lesser, Paul writes to the Roman Christians in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things. Friends, we could never possibly outgive God. What could compare with what He's already given to us in His Son? If God can be trusted to provide your greatest need, which is the forgiveness of your sin and restoration of the relationship with Him, can He not be trusted to provide every other need so less significant than that? I get it, paying your bills, that's significant. I get that, that that's significant. But in comparison for what God has done, he says, how will he not meet these needs as well? And you may have picked up, uh, obviously, that our church is doing financially well. So you know I'm not talking about giving because we need to make budget this week, right? That, you know that's the case. I'm talking about it for two reasons. Number one, it comes up in our passage, so we want to deal with that. But number two, because giving is not a budget issue, friends. Giving is not a budget issue. Giving is a discipleship issue. I really believe that. And that's why I will preach on giving as vehemently as an evangelist as I can. Not because it's about budget, but it's because it's about discipleship. Because nothing reveals the allegiance of our heart more than what we will, how we will relate with our money and what we will do with it. Like how we, what we spend our money on and what we give it to. So that's why we want to preach on it and preach passionately about it. We want you to give because you're excited about what God will do with your contribution, however small or however great. However great. We want you to give because you want to see gospel work well supplied at Christ Community Church. We have faithful stewards who are excited to use this money for kingdom work. And it's not just about our church. It never is about our church. The day we think it's just about us is the day we misunderstand our theology on the church. God is doing a great work, and we want to be a part of that because greedily, we want in on that investment, don't we? I, I want to see what God's going to do with John Buck at, at, at Faith Bible Church. I am greedy for their, their, for, for their flourishing because we're partnering together, just like many of these churches around here. Give because you recognize the vanity of the temporal world, right? Give because you recognize the vanity of the temporal world. 
I mean, just think about all the money you spent on clothes you used to wear 10 years ago that you're embarrassed to be seen in now, right? I mean, you just, <laughs> remember members-only jackets when we thought that was cool? I mean, come on. Um, give because God has given to you. Give because you received grace and mercy. Give because as Philippians has taught us, this is the natural fruit of a grateful, humble, joyous heart. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.